The Tunnel Under the World by Frederick Pohl, Part Two, of Dramatic Reading Scene and Story Collection, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tunnel Under the World, Part Two. It was Burkhardt's idea, and Swanson despised it, but he went along. He was the type who always went along. It's dangerous, he grumbled worriedly. Suppose somebody comes by, they'll spot us in. What have we got to lose? Swanson shrugged. It's dangerous, he said again, but he went along. Burkhardt's idea was very simple. He was sure of only one thing. The tunnel went somewhere. Martians or Russians, fantastic pot or crazy hallucination, whatever was wrong with Tyleton had an explanation, and the place to look for it was at the end of the tunnel. They jogged along. It was more than a mile before they began to see an end. They were in luck. At least no one came through the tunnel to spot them. But Swanson had said that it was only at certain hours that the tunnel seemed to be in use. Always the 15th of June. Why? Burkhart asked himself. Never mind the how. Why? And falling asleep, completely involuntarily, everyone at the same time, it seemed, and not remembering, never remembering anything. Swanson had said how eagerly he saw Burkhart again, the morning after Burkhart had incautiously waited five minutes too many before retreating into the dark room. When Swanson had come to, Burkhart was gone. Swanson had seen him in the street that afternoon, but Burkhart had remembered nothing. And Swanson had lived his mouse's existence for weeks, hiding in the woodwork at night, stealing up by day to search for Burkhart in pitiful hope, scurrying around the fringe of life, trying to keep from the deadly eyes of them. Them. One of them was the girl named April Horn. It was by seeing her walk carelessly into a telephone booth and never come out that Swanson had found the tunnel. Another was the man at the cigar stand in Burkhart's office building. There were more, at least a dozen that Swanson knew of or suspected. They were easy enough to spot once you knew where to look for they, alone in Tyleton, changed their roles from day to day. Burkhart was on that 8.51 bus every morning of every day that was June 15th, never different by a hair or a moment. But April Horn was sometimes gaudy in the cellophane skirt giving away candy or cigarettes, sometimes plainly dressed, sometimes not seen by Swanson at all. Russians? Martians? Whatever they were, what could they be hoping to gain from this mad masquerade? Burkhart didn't know the answer but perhaps it lay beyond the door at the end of the tunnel. They listened carefully and heard distant sounds that could not quite be made out, but nothing that seemed dangerous. They slipped through. And, through a wide chamber and up a flight of steps, they found that they were in what Burkhart recognised as the contrary chemicals plant. Nobody was in sight. By itself, that was not so very odd. The automatised factory had never had very many persons in it. But Burkhart remembered, from his single visit, endless ceaseless busyness of the plant the valves that opened and closed the vats that emptied themselves and filled themselves and stirred and cooked and chemically tasted the bubbling liquids they held inside themselves the plant was never populated but it was never still only now it was still except for the distant sounds there was no breath of life in it the captive electronic minds were sending out no commands the coils and relays were at rest burkhart said come on Swanson reluctantly followed him through the tangled aisles of stainless steel columns and tanks. They walked as though they were in the presence of the dead. 
in a way they were for what were the automatons that once had run the factory if not corpses the machines were controlled by computers that were really not computers at all but the electronic analogues of living brains and if they were turned off were they not dead for each had once been a human mind take a master petroleum chemist infinitely skilled in the separation of crude oil into its fractions strap him down probe into his brain with searching electronic needles the machine scans the patterns of the mind translates what it sees into charts and sine waves impress these same waves on a robot computer and you have your chemist or a thousand copies of your chemist if you wish with all of his knowledge and skill and no human limitations at all put a dozen copies of him into a plant and they will run it all twenty-four hours a day seven days of every week never tiring never overlooking anything never forgetting swanson stepped up closer to burkhart i'm scared he said they were across the room now and the sounds were louder they were not machine sounds but voices burkhart moved cautiously up to a door and dared to peer around it it was a smaller room lined with television screens each one a dozen or more at least with a man or woman sitting before it staring into the screen and dictating notes into a recorder the viewers dialed from scene to scene no two screens ever showed the same picture the pictures seemed to have little in common one was a store where a girl dressed like april horn was demonstrating home freezers one was a series of shots of kitchens burkhart caught a glimpse of what looked like the cigar stand in his office building it was baffling and burkhart would have loved to stand there and puzzle it out but it was too busy a place there was the chance that someone would look their way or walk out and find them they found another room this one was empty it was an office large and sumptuous it had a desk littered with papers burkhart stared at them briefly at first then as the words on one of them caught his attention with incredulous fascination he snatched up the topmost sheet scanned it and another while swanson was frenziedly searching through the drawers burkhart swore unbelievingly and dropped the papers to the desk swanson hardly noticing yelped with delight look he dragged a gun from the desk and it's loaded too burkhart stared at him blankly trying to assimilate what he had read then as he realized what swanson had said burkhart's eyes sparkled good man he cried we'll take it we're getting out of here with that gun swanson and we're going to the police not the cops in tarleton but the fbi maybe take a look at this the sheaf he handed swanson was headed test area progress report subject marlin cigarettes campaign it was mostly tabulated figures that made little sense to burkhart and swanson but at the end was a summary that said although test forty seven k three pulled nearly double the number of new users of any of the other tests conducted it probably cannot be used in the field because of local sound truck control ordinances the tests in the forty seven k twelve group were second best and our recommendation is that retests be conducted in this appeal testing each of the three best campaigns with and without the addition of sampling techniques an alternative suggestion might be to proceed directly with the top appeal in the k-12 series if the client is unwilling to go to the expense of additional tests all of these forecast expectations have an eighty percent probability of being within one half of one percent of results forecast and more than ninety nine percent probability of coming within five percent swanson looked up from the paper into burkhardt's eyes i don't get it he complained burkhardt said i don't blame you 
It's crazy, but it fits the facts, Swanson. It fits the facts. They aren't Russians and they aren't Martians. These people are advertising men. Somehow, heaven knows how they did it, they've taken Tylerton over. They've got us, all of us, you and me and twenty or thirty thousand other people, right under their thumbs. Maybe they hypnotise us and maybe it's something else, but however they do it, what happens is that they let us live one day at a time. They pour advertising into us the whole damn day long. At the end of the day, they see what happened. And then they wash the day out of our minds and start again the next day with different advertising. Swanson's jaw was hanging. He managed to close it and swallow. Nuts, he said flatly. Burkhart shook his head. Sure, it sounds crazy, but this whole thing is crazy. How else would you explain it? You can't deny that most of Tylerton lives the same day over and over again. You've seen it. And that's the crazy part, and we have to admit that that's true, unless we are the crazy ones. And once you admit that somebody somehow knows how to accomplish that, the rest of it makes all kinds of sense. Think of it, Swanson. They test every last detail before they spend a nickel on advertising. Do you have any idea what that means? Lord knows how much money is involved, but I know for a fact that some companies spend 20 or 30 million dollars a year on advertising. Multiply it, say, by 100 companies, so that every one of them learns how to cut its advertising cost by only 10%, and that's peanuts, believe me. If they know in advance what's going to work, they can cut their costs in half. Maybe to less than half, I don't know. But that's saving two or three hundred million dollars a year. And if they pay only ten or twenty percent of that for the use of Tylerton, it's still dirt cheap for them, and a fortune for whoever took over Tylerton. Swanson licked his lips. You mean... He offered hesitantly. That we're a, well, kind of captive audience? Burkhart frowned. Not exactly. He thought for a minute. You know how a doctor tests something like penicillin? He sets up a series of little colonies of germs on gelatine discs, and he tries the stuff on one after another, changing it a little each time. Well, that's us. We're the germs, Swanson. Only it's even more efficient than that. They don't have to test more than one colony, because they can use it over and over again. It was too hard for Swanson to take in. He only said, What do we do about it? We go to the police. They can't use human beings for guinea pigs. Well, how do we get to the police? Burkhart hesitated. I think... He began slowly. Sure, this place is the office of somebody important. We've got a gun. We'll stay right here until he comes along, and he'll get us out of here. Simple and direct. Swanson subsided and found a place to sit against the wall out of sight of the door, and Burkhart took up a position behind the door itself and waited. The wait was not as long as it might have been. Half an hour, perhaps. Then Burkhart heard approaching voices and had time for a swift whisper to Swanson before he flattened himself against the wall. It was a man's voice and a girl's. The man was saying, Reason why you couldn't report on the phone? You're ruining your whole day's test. What the devil's the matter with you, Janet? I'm sorry, Mr. Dorchin, she said in a sweet, queer tone. I thought it was important. Important, the man grumbled. One lousy unit out of twenty-one thousand. But it's the Burkhart one, Mr. Dorchin. Again. And the way he got out of sight, he must have had some help. All right, all right. It doesn't matter, Janet. The Chocobite program is ahead of schedule anyhow. As long as you're this far, come on in the office and make out your worksheet. And don't worry about the Burkhart business. He's probably just wandering around. 
we'll pick em up to-night and they were inside the door burkhart kicked it shut and pointed the gun that's what you think he said triumphantly it was worth the terrified hours the bewildered sense of insanity the confusion and fear it was the most satisfying sensation burkhart had ever had in his life the expression on the man's face was one he had read about but never actually seen dorchin's mouth fell open and his eyes went wide and though he managed to make a sound that might have been a question it was not in words the girl was almost as surprised and burkhart looking at her knew why her voice had been so familiar the girl was the one who had introduced herself to him as april horn dorchin recovered himself quickly is this the one he asked sharply the girl said yes dorchin nodded i take it back you were right um uh, you burkhart what do you want swanson piped up watch him he might have another gun search him then burkhart said i'll tell you what we want dorchin we want you to come along with us to the fbi and explain to them how you can get away with kidnapping twenty thousand people kidnapping dorchin snorted that's ridiculous man put that gun away you can't get away with this burkhart hefted the gun grimly i think i can dorchin looked furious and sick but oddly not afraid damn it he started to bellow then closed his mouth and swallowed listen he said persuasively you're making a big mistake i haven't kidnapped anybody believe me i don't believe you said burkhart bluntly why should i but it's true take my word for it burkhart shook his head the fbi can take your word if they like we'll find out now how do we get out of here dorchin opened his mouth to argue don't get in my way burkhart blazed i'm willing to kill you if i have to don't you understand that i've gone through two days of hell and every second of it i blame on you kill you it would be a pleasure and i don't have a thing in the world to lose get us out of here dorchin's face went suddenly opaque he seemed about to move but the blonde girl he had called janet slipped between him and the gun please she begged burkhart's you don't understand you mustn't shoot get out of my way but mr burkhart she never finished dorchin his face unreadable headed for the door burkhart had been pushed one degree too far he swung the gun bellowing the girl called out sharply he pulled the trigger closing on him with pity and pleading in her eyes she came again between the gun and the man burkhart aimed low instinctively to cripple not to kill but his aim was not good the pistol bullet caught her in the pit of the stomach dorchin was out and away the door slamming behind him his footsteps racing into the distance burkhart hurled the gun across the room and jumped to the girl swanson was moaning that finishes burkhart oh why did you do it we could have got away we could have gone to the police we were practically out of here we burkhart wasn't listening he was kneeling beside the girl she lay flat on her back arms helter-skelter there was no blood hardly any sign of the wound but the position in which she lay was one that no living human being could have held yet she wasn't dead she wasn't dead and burkhart frozen beside her thought she isn't alive either there was no pulse but there was a rhythmic ticking of the outstretched fingers of one hand there was no sound of breathing but there was a hissing sizzling noise 
The eyes were open, and they were looking at Burkhardt. There was neither fear nor pain in them, only a pity deeper than the pit. She said, through lips that writhed erratically, Don't worry, Mr. Burkhardt. I'm all right. Burkhardt rocked back on his haunches, staring. Where there should have been blood, there was a clean break of a substance that was not flesh, and a curl of thin golden copper wire. Burkhardt moistened his lips. You're a robot, he said. The girl tried to nod. The twitching lips said, I am, and so are you. Swanson, after a single inarticulate sound, walked over to the desk and sat staring at the wall. Burkhardt rocked back and forth beside the shattered puppet on the floor. He had no words. The girl managed to say, I'm sorry all this happened. The lovely lips twisted into a rictus sneer, frightening on that smooth young face until she got them under control. Sorry, she said again. The nerve centre was right about where the bullet hit. Makes it difficult to control this body. Burkhardt nodded automatically, accepting the apology. Robots. It was obvious, now that he knew it. In hindsight, it was inevitable. He thought of his mystic notions of hypnosis or Martians or something stranger still. Idiotic, for the simple facts of created robots fitted the facts better and more economically. All the evidence had been before him. The automatized factory, with its transplanted minds. Why not transplant a mind into a humanoid robot, give it its original owner's features and form? Could it know that it was a robot? All of us? Burkhardt said, hardly aware that he spoke out loud. My wife and my secretary and you and the neighbours, all of us the same? No. The voice was stronger. Not exactly the same, all of us. I chose it, you see, I... This time the convulsed lips were not a random contortion of the nerves. I was an ugly woman, Mr. Burkhardt, and nearly sixty years old. Life had passed me. And when Mr. Dorchin offered me the chance to live again as a beautiful girl, I jumped at the opportunity. Believe me... I jumped, in spite of its disadvantages. My flesh body is still alive. It is sleeping while I am here. I could go back to it, but I never do. And the rest of us? Different, Mr. Burkhardt. I work here. I am carrying out Mr. Dorchin's orders, mapping the results of the advertising tests, watching you and the others live as he makes you live. I do it by choice, but you have no choice. Because, you see, you are dead. Dead? cried Burkhardt. It was almost a scream. The blue eyes looked at him unwinkingly, and he knew that it was no lie. He swallowed, marvelling at the intricate mechanisms that let him swallow, and sweat, and eat. He said, Oh, the explosion in my dream. It was no dream. You are right. The explosion. That was real, and this plant was the cause of it. The storage tanks let go, and what a blast didn't get, the fumes killed a little later. But almost everyone died in the blast. Twenty-one thousand persons. You died with them, and that was Dorchin's chance. The damn ghoul, said Burkhardt. The twisted shoulders shrugged with an odd grace. Why? You were gone, and you and all the others were what Dorchin wanted. A whole town, a perfect slice of America. It's as easy to transfer a pattern from a dead brain as a living one. Easier, the dead can't say no. 
Oh, it took work and money. The town was a wreck. But it was possible to rebuild it entirely, especially because it wasn't necessary to have all the details exact. There were the homes where even the brains had been utterly destroyed, and those are empty inside, and the cellars that needn't be too perfect, and the streets that hardly matter. And anyway, it only has to last for one day. The same day, June 15th, over and over again. And if someone finds something a little wrong, somehow, the discovery won't have time to snowball, wreck the validity of the tests, because all errors are cancelled out at midnight. The face tried to smile. That's the dream, Mr. Burkhardt. The day of June 15th, because you never really lived it. It's a present from Mr. Dorchin, a dream that he gives you, and then takes back at the end of the day, when he has all his figures on how many of you responded to what variation of a witch appeal, and the maintenance crew go down the tunnel to go through the whole city, washing out the new dream with their little electronic drains, and then the dream starts all over again, on June 15th. Always June 15th, because June 14th is the last day any of you can remember alive, Sometimes the crews miss someone, as they missed you, because you were under your boat. But it doesn't matter. The only ones who are missed give themselves away if they show it. And if they don't, it doesn't affect the test. But they don't drain us, the ones of us who work for Dorchin. We sleep when the power is turned off, just as you do. When we wake up, though, we remember. The face contorted wildly. If I could only forget... Burkhardt said unbelievingly. All this to sell merchandise? It must have cost millions. The robot called April Horn said. It did, but it has made millions for Dorchin too, and that's not the end of it. Once he finds the master words that make people act, do you suppose he will stop with that? Do you suppose? The door opened, interrupting her. Burkhardt whirled. Belatedly remembering Dorchin's flight, he raised the gun. Don't shoot, ordered the voice calmly. It was not Dorchin, it was another robot, this one not disguised with the clever plastics and cosmetics, but shining plain. It said metallically, Forget it, Burkhardt. You're not accomplishing anything. Give me that gun before you do any more damage. Give it to me now. Burkhardt bellowed angrily. The gleam on this robot's torso was steel. Burkhardt was not at all sure that his bullets would pierce it or do much harm if they did. He would have put it to the test, but from behind him came a whimpering, scurrying whirlwind. Its name was Swanson, hysterical with fear. He catapulted into Burkhardt's and sent him sprawling, the gun flying free. Please, begged Swanson incoherently, prostrate before the steel robot. He would have shot you. Please don't hurt me. Let me work for you like that girl. I'll do anything, anything you tell me. The robot voice said, We don't need your help. It took two precise steps and stood over the gun and spurned it, left it lying on the floor. The wrecked blonde robot said without emotion, I doubt that I can hold up much longer, Mr. Dorchin. Disconnect if you have to, replied the steel robot. Burkhart's blinked. But you're not Dorchin. The steel robot turned deep eyes on him. I am, it said. Not in the flesh, but this is the body I am using at the moment. I doubt that you can damage this one with the gun. The other robot body was more vulnerable. 
now will you stop this nonsense i don't want to have to damage you you're too expensive for that will you just sit down and let the maintenance crews adjust you swanson grovelled you you won't punish us the steel robot had no expression but its voice was almost surprised punish you it repeated on a rising note how swanson quivered as though the word had been a whip but burkhart flared adjust him if he'll let you but not me you're going to have to do me a lot of damage dorchin i don't care what i cost or how much trouble it's going to be to put me back together again but i'm going out of that door if you want to stop me you'll have to kill me you won't stop me any other way the steel robot took a half step toward him and burkhart involuntarily checked his stride he stood poised and shaking ready for death ready for attack ready for anything that might happen ready for anything except what did happen for Dorchin's steel body merely stepped aside between Burkhart and the gun, but leaving the door free. Go ahead, invited the steel robot. Nobody's stopping you. Outside the door, Burkhart brought up sharp. It was insane of Dorchin to let him go. Robot or flesh, victim or beneficiary, there was nothing to stop him from going to the FBI or whatever law he could find away from Dorchin's synthetic empire and telling his story. Surely the corporations who paid Dorchin for test results had no notion of the ghoul's technique he used. Dorchin would have to keep it from them, for the breath of publicity would put a stop to it. Walking out meant death, perhaps, but at that moment in his pseudo-life, death was no terror for Burkhart. There was no one in the corridor. He found a window and stared out of it. There was Tylerton, an ersatz city, but looking so real and familiar that Burkhardt almost imagined the whole episode a dream. It was no dream, though. He was certain of that in his heart, and equally certain that nothing in Tylerton could help him now. It had to be the other direction. It took him a quarter of an hour to find a way, but he found it, skulking through the corridors, dodging the suspicion of footsteps, knowing for certain that his hiding was in vain, for Dorchin was undoubtedly aware of every move he made. But no one stopped him, and he found another door. It was a simple enough door from the inside, but when he opened it and stepped out, it was like nothing he had ever seen. First there was light, brilliant, incredible, blinding light. Burkhardt blinked upward, unbelieving and afraid. He was standing on a ledge of smooth, finished metal. Not a dozen yards from his feet, the ledge dropped sharply away. He hardly dared approach the brink, but even from where he stood, he could see no bottom to the chasm before him, and the gulf extended out of sight into the glare on either side of him. No wonder Dorchin could so easily give him his freedom. From the factory there was nowhere to go. But how incredible this fantastic gulf, how impossible the hundred white and blinding suns that hung above. A voice by his side said inquiringly, Burkhart? And thunder rolled the name, mutteringly soft, back and forth in the abyss before him. Burkhardt wet his lips. Yes? He croaked. This is Dorchin, not a robot this time, but Dorchin in the flesh, talking to you on a hand mic. Now you have seen Burkhardt. Now will you be reasonable and let the maintenance crews take over? Burkhardt stood paralyzed. One of the moving mountains in the blinding glare came toward him. It towered hundreds of feet over his head. He stared up at its top squinting helplessly into the light it looked like impossible 
The voice in the loudspeaker at the door said, Burkhart? But he was unable to answer. A heavy, rumbling sigh. I see, said the voice. You finally understand. There's no place to go. You know it now. I could have told you, but you might not have believed me, so it was better for you to see it yourself. And after all, Burkhart, why would I reconstruct a city just the way it was before? I'm a business man. I count costs. If a thing has to be full-scale, I build it that way. But there wasn't any need to in this case. From the mountain before him, Burkhart helplessly saw a lesser cliff descend carefully toward him. It was long and dark, and at the end of it was whiteness, five-fingered whiteness. Poor little Burkhart, crooned the loudspeaker, while the echoes rumbled through the enormous chasm that was only a workshop. It must have been quite a shock for you to find out you were living in a town built on a tabletop. It was the morning of June 15th, and Guy Burkhart woke up screaming out of a dream. It had been a monstrous and incomprehensible dream, of explosions and shadowy figures that were not men, and terror beyond words. He shuddered and opened his eyes. Outside his bedroom window, a hugely amplified voice was howling. Burkhart stumbled over to the window and stared outside. There was an out-of-season chill to the air, more like October than June, but the scent was normal enough, except for the sound truck that squatted at curbside, halfway down the block. Its speaker horns blared. Are you a coward? Are you a fool? Are you going to let crooked politicians steal the country from you? No. Are you going to put up with four more years of graft and crime? No. Are you going to vote straight federal party all up and down the ballot? Yes. You just bet you are. Sometimes he screams, sometimes he wheedles, threatens, begs, cajoles. But his voice goes on and on through one June 15th after another. End of Tunnel Under the World by Frederick Pohl